Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. What does it mean when we say something has power? Well, in our modern technological age, usually when we say something has power, we're talking about like battery life, right? Does it have power? Oh, this thing needs power. We need to plug that in. I I shudder to think how much of my adult life I've spent looking for a charging cable. Like, it's a a valuable, important thing if something has power. And that's just one way of measuring power, right? We, We also talk about things like horsepower, and we don't actually mean necessarily horses, we're talking about cars and how much power relative to horses that they had when cars were originally came along as replacement for horses. It was like, well, how much horsepower can this car make? You know, and so we would talk about that as power. And what we mean is like how much of something, how strong is it, how much energy can it produce? That's a, that's a way of thinking about power. Another way we think about power and talk about it is not about electricity or energy like that, but, but we talk about power as if it is um, the ability to affect or change things or, or, or maybe the ability to exert control over something else. So if you say um, this leader in an organization has power, it means they can change things in the organization. Oh, the CEO has a lot of power because they can bring about a lot of change, right? The executive director has power because they can change the thing. Um, or politicians have power because they can change some things in your life, right? We've seen this over the last year. Epidemiologists make recommendations to politicians. Politicians pass laws and, and, and they start to exert a level of power or control over the life of people. Uh, that's another way we talk about power, right? Does it, does it change? Um, and, and another way to think about power is um, it's something that moves you. It's powerful, we would say. Think about, uh, you know, I went to the symphony and I heard Beethoven's Ninth and it was powerful. It moved me in my soul. I, I heard, uh, I went to this concert and I heard that song. It was so powerful. It was just such a powerful moment. It, it moved me. Uh, I, the, the, the final scene of Schindler's List where, where Oscar Schindler realizes that if he had sold more things and, and liquidated his assets, he could have saved more people. He could have saved more Jews from the Holocaust. It's a, it's a powerful scene when he begins to lament that he even owns things and he could have done so much more. That's powerful. And when we say it's powerful, what we mean is that struck a chord in my soul. Like that, that hit something very deep inside me and it moved me and it moved me to want to change. And I bring all that up because I want to talk about a concept today uh, about power and the cross of Christ. And, and I know you may not necessarily associate those things together. You might not say power the way I've just described it and think about, oh, Jesus on the cross, that's power. But that's actually the way the scripture talks about it, particularly in the book that we've been studying that we started called 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the church in the city of Corinth, um, he talks about power and the idea of the cross being power. And, and I want to talk about what that is and why it matters. Because my guess is you didn't come to church today thinking about this, right? In 2021, you don't walk into church going, I wonder if the cross is powerful and if that's useful in my life. No, like you walk into church thinking about, I got to pay rent. Uh, You know, can I get a job? Can I keep a job? Um, Is is this going to work out? Is this relationship working out? Why are my kids being this way? Well, I got to call my mom back. I got to get groceries later. Like there are lots of things going on in your mind and on your 
uh, top of mind and, and heart and concerns, and you're not thinking about, is the cross powerful? But here's what I believe. The cross is actually really relevant to our lives. And if we would understand it, and hopefully I can make a case for it, if we understand it well, uh, it really does matter to how we live uh, today and, and, and every day. Um, I, I think it, it's huge. It is the symbol of Christianity. The cross is the symbol of Christianity for good reason. Because it's not just the symbol of how he died, but it's actually a symbol of how we are supposed to live. So I want to get into that. But to, to, to take us there, I want to go back into 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 2. We've been reading through the book. But I want to point out how much first, uh, the cross has already shown up in 1 Corinthians 1, which you looked at the last couple of weeks. Uh, it, it's already shown up all over the place there, and I just kind of skipped over it. But I, I just want to bring you back to it. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about the cross. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Oh, okay, that's weird. That, that I'm not trying to use fancy words because I don't want to empty the cross of its power. He uses that word there. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wait, the cross is the power of God? If I asked you right now, what is the power of God in your life? What is the evidence of the power of God? Would you say uh, the cross? doesn't make any sense, does it? What is the evidence of God's power in your life? Um, well, when I pray, things happen. Um, uh, some relationships have gotten better because God has done his work in... The, like, there are ways we think about power and even divine power that don't match up with what Paul just said. We're going to think of power like, almost like in a Marvel superhero way. Like, I have the power of God, therefore I can, you know, see through walls, or I can walk on water, or I can do things. Like, there's power, right? That's power. And Paul says, no, the cross is power. That doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Keep, keep going, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentile. So he, he's, again, talking about Christ being crucified and, and how central that is to their faith. And then continuing on in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Again, uh, Christ as power, the cross as power, these things all coming together. Somehow, in some way, Jesus Christ hung on a cross is powerful. That's what he's trying to let us know. There's something going on there. Now look what he says to start chapter 2. I want to I start here, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, on the cross, right? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." 
This has been really challenging to read those. I've been reading this over and over these first couple chapters as we've been studying through this, just reading it on my own in my own sort of quiet time and writing down any observations I have. And these verses were very challenging to me as a preacher. And I want to give them to every preacher in America and say, look, here's the deal. The, the point of what we do when we communicate the gospel to people, when we're teaching people, when we're talking to people, is not to be impressive. It's not supposed to be, look how clever I can be, look how funny I am, look at any of that stuff. That is not the point. The point is you hold up Jesus and let him do his work of drawing people to, to, unto himself, right? That's, that's what it's about. It's not about how clever we can be. And Paul says this, which was, which was challenging to me. We're supposed to lift up the cross and let the, the power of that do its work. Now, I want to be compelling when I speak. I want to be engaging. I want people to not be bored when, 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 we, have, when we do this. But at the end of the day, the point is not for you to put your faith in what I am telling you or in me, because I will disappoint you. The point is for you to put your faith in Jesus. So I'm here to point people to him and say, he is where it's at. This is what, what our faith rests on. Paul makes the point that our, our faith, he says, I, I, I didn't I didn't want to know anything when I was with you except Christ and him crucified. The point of our faith, it does not rest on Jesus' um, teachings. It's not like Paul was like, the golden rule, that's the thing that's going to change your life. Or let me read to you the Sermon on the Mount, that's really where it's at. I mean, those are all great things, and we want to read Jesus' teachings and know his teachings. But the heart of our faith, the, 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 sort of the, the centerpiece of all of Christianity is really Jesus died on a cross and came back from the dead and was resurrected. His death and resurrection are the heart of the thing. What we, what we celebrate Easter weekend, that is the heart of, of our faith, not on his teaching. Now, the early church understood this, and they adopted it. Um, they, they, um, they, they, they took the cross as the symbol for their lives, not an empty tomb, because that's a weird symbol, I guess, but the cross became a symbol, and it is one of the most recognized symbols in all of, all of the world. You know the cross, you see it on churches, you see it on buildings, you see it in, in writings, and it, it's all over the place. Have you, have you guys ever uh, driven on the interstate system and seen the three crosses that show up next to the road? You've seen these? So there's uh, three crosses that you'll see. Uh, one is gold, and then there's two that are light blue. And, and once you notice them, you can't not notice them, especially in West Virginia. There's a lot there. I don't know if you have reason to go there, but there's a lot there. But I, I've seen them all over the place. I actually looked it up. I'm like, why are there three crosses along the side of the road on various hilltops? And it's, it's to represent the cross of Christ, right? This gold crown, kingly cross in the center, and then the two criminals that were on either side of him, these three crosses. Um, I looked it up. There's actually 1,864 of those all over 29 states around the country because somebody decided it was in their, a good project to like put that up everywhere. So it's, it's all over the place. The cross shows up um, all, all, all over the place. So why? Why does it matter? Why, why, why would we still be talking about it? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, the cross has power to free you from guilt. The cross has power, when we talk about the power of it, it has the power to free you from guilt. Now, we all know what it's like to feel guilty. All of us have had our hand in the cookie jar and have been caught at some point. And this is true no matter what moral or ethical code that you have. If you grew up in a very religious home, you know what it's like to feel guilty because of all the things you were told you could not do, right? Like, 
You, you had to do this, don't do this. You couldn't dance. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't go to, you know, just all the things are, are bad and evil because God and God doesn't like you to do those things and play cards and have fun and whatever. Like they're all list, a long list of things you can't do. And you know that you've broken things on that list. But even if you didn't grow up in a religious upbringing, you have some sort of ethical, moral standard, some sort of code, something you live by. You don't maybe have a name for it, but you would just go like, yeah, I don't think we should lie, or I don't think you should do these things. Like, there's things you go, that's out of bounds, I shouldn't do those things. And yet, every single one of us in the scripture attest, will attest to this, every single one of us has broken the code. It doesn't matter what the code is, we've all broken it. We've all broken the standard. We've all been like, I shouldn't do that, and then we've done it. I should do these things, but then I didn't do them. Like, that is, a, that is the universal human experience. We, we, we've, all, we've all been there. And because of that, we feel guilty. Now, it's not something you think about all the time. You don't walk around necessarily feeling guilty all the time that you broke the rules. But you are guilty. And, and long term, that can start to look like shame, which is a whole other topic. We'll talk about it another time. But, we, but that sense of I am guilty um, it, it weighs on us. And so we don't think about it in every moment of every day, but what we end up doing is, is going to some sort of drug of choice to make that feel better. I feel guilty, therefore I'm going to medicate in these ways. It could be alcohol or porn or busyness or approval or eating or relationships, you know, string of relationships or whatever. Like we get into things to try to make it feel better because we all know that at the end of the day, um, we're, we're guilty. And what the cross does, when Jesus dies on the cross, what we understand is that he takes our sin. So all of those things we've done, the ways we've blown it, the ways we've broken relationship between other people and with God, he takes all of that on him on the cross and says, I see your sin, I know what you did, and I forgive you. And that is a powerful thing. You have been made clear before God when you come to Christ. When you give your life to him, you're baptized into him, you, it, it is your sin going on that cross with Christ and you have been made clear and he has made things right between you and God. Um, the, the, the word for that sort of in theological terms they talk about is substitutionary atonement. That Jesus has paid for your sin, he's become the substitution, he has been in your place um, and has paid for your sin. Now substitutionary atonement has become um, criticized a lot. I've heard it criticized quite a bit recently. Um, by, in a non-Christian world, I remember Christopher Hitchens, sort of the famous atheist, one of the four atheist horsemen of the apocalypse from about the past 20 years. Uh, he used to criticize the idea of substitutionary atonement, that someone would die on behalf of, the, of another as a horrible idea, and God's wicked if he believes that, and all that kind of thing. Um, and more recently, I've heard more progressives like Richard Rohr and some others who are saying, no, no, substitutionary atonement's wrong, and that's not right, and God wouldn't do that, and that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's attested to pretty well in Scripture that Jesus dies in place of us, and he takes our sin on the cross. And this is good news, because as Paul says in one of his other writings, Romans chapter 8, he says this, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore, because of what Christ has done on the cross, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means your guilt has been covered. It has been dealt with. Um, this is in, incredibly good news. There's no condemnation for you. This doesn't mean that you aren't going to experience some of the consequences of what you've done. Sometimes the consequences of our sin follows us for a long time, and there's things you have to deal with. 
It means you're going to have some regrets. I wish I hadn't done that back then. That was a bad idea. That's okay. But there's no condemnation. You are, you are not guilty before God for those things when you give your life to him because of what Christ did at the cross. You are free from the guilt of it. So number one, the cross does that. Number two, the cross has power to create a new heart in you. It has power to create something new in you, a new heart. And this is a powerful thing. Romans 5, Paul says it this way. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. There's a connection between Christ dying on the cross and God's love. And that's hard sometimes for us to make the connection because someone dying on a cross on a brutal Roman execution, like a torturing execution instrument, does not feel like love in the warm, fuzzy greeting card sort of way. But Paul's reminding us in Romans, hey, here's the deal. The highest form of God's love for you was when he died for you. He showed love to you in that way. That's that's how love is expressed. There's no greater love than one would lay down their life for someone else. And that should make sense to us. Isn't it the the most dramatic sort of um, uh, romantic, but maybe not in in the the lovey-dovey sort of way, but like this dramatic moment in all of, of, of writing or music or art uh, there's this moment of, I will take a bullet for you. And, and we would see that moment as that is the highest expression of love. If, if, I will, if I will die in your place, if I will die for you, I will take this bullet, I will take this punishment for you. That's a, that's a powerful expression of love. We talk about love in terms of love languages. Oh, are you a physical touch person? Oh, let me, let me hold your hand. I, I love you. Oh, you're an acts of service person. I will, I'll make the bed and that shows how I love you and I'll wash dishes and I love you and you're a, you're a words of affirmation. I'll say nice things to you. Like we talk about that in marriage and all those things and those are good. But at the end of the day, the ultimate expression of I love you would be I'm willing to put it all on the line for you, including my own life. And what Christians have always understood is that, is that that's that's where this starts for us. God has come in the flesh and has, has put it all on the line and has died for us. It's, it's, it's powerful. And, 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 and that changes us. I've, I've studied a lot about why people change. It's kind of a hobby, a professional or personal, I suppose, of, of, my, of my adult life of how do we change? Why do we change? What makes people change? What moves people and I've got lots of things to say about that. I teach a transformation class. You can, you can come be part of that if you want. We're going to do it again in September uh, where we talk about things. And there are things to talk about there, like uh, you know, having a compelling vision that moves you forward and, 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 and pull you through suffering and those sorts of things. Like There's good things to talk about. But here's what I'm convinced of. The love of God changes people. And I've seen it happen over and over again. There are people, and I know some, and you know some too, they're just different because they came to Christ. And it, they're different in a good way. Like God has done something in their life. They were, they were in a bad spot, and God got a hold of them, and it changed them. This is why Alcoholics Anonymous has been so successful. It's because it's not a, hey, you should just change and go get after it. It is from the, from the first point of AA. It is, you need to acknowledge there's something greater than you. 
There's, there's, there's a God out there and he wants to have a relationship with you and there's something about that that changes you. The love of God changes us. I don't know about you, but I don't change when someone tells me off. Right? When was the last time you were like, man, they sure got told and now they're going to change? Like, that doesn't happen. Have you, have you ever seen that on social media? Have you ever seen anybody change their mind on social media about anything? No. And if you have, it wasn't because they got told. It wasn't like, man, I got told. You told me. That doesn't work. What works is truth spoken in love, not being told. If I speak truth to you, it could, be, it could be rough, it could be hard, but if it's spoken in the context of love, that changes things. Truth without love is just legalism. You're not following the rules. Love without truth is just sentimentality. Oh, let's just hug it out. What you, what you need, what I need, what we all need is truth spoken in love. That's the combination. Jesus taught truth. When he spoke, he spoke words of truth about this is humanity, this is what life is, this is what the human existence is, this is why we're here, this is what it's about, here's heaven, here's hell, here's money, sex, greed, power, all the things. He talks about all the things that we would, that we would hit in culture. He'll, he'll speak truth into those situations and then he will back it up by his actions. He will die on a cross showing his love towards us. In, in, he has truth and love together, and that moves people. I think about the, 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 the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, when it's trying to get at this idea. The third verse from When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, you, you may know it, I'll put it on the screen, it says this, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. I love that. Was there ever a moment in human history when love and sorrow came together? The, the, the brutality, the, the sadness of the cross is met with the divine love of God that he stretches out his arm and dies for you. Yeah, you've had trauma, you've had pain, you've had hard things, we've, we've walked through hard stuff in life, but there's nothing quite like that. The, the, the drama of that all coming together, love and sorrow, the sadness and the pain coming together with the love of God is a powerful thing, and that, and that moves people. Uh, it, it creates something new in us. It changes hearts. Um, have you seen people who have changed because of the love of God in their life? Let me give you an example. Um, on October 2nd, 2006, in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a man named Charles Roberts went into a small Amish schoolhouse with a gun, and he shot eight little girls, killing five of them in this Amish community. And maybe you remember it. Um, un unfortunately, there's so many School shootings, um, it's hard to, oh wait, what, what happened? Um, but that happened in 2006. And this Amish community was, was devastated by it as, as five girls died. And then, he, then the, the, the shooter turned the gun and killed himself. But one of the most powerful things that came out of that was the funeral for the shooter the widow of the, of the shooter, um, they, they had a funeral, the graveside and all that. 
And several of the, the victims, several of the Amish families, showed up at the funeral of the shooter, not to protest, not to say horrible things, not to hold up signs, to sing, to pray, to show love for the widow. And they hugged her, and they cried with her as they were grieving the loss of their own children in this. What is it that makes somebody do that? If someone took away your child in that, in that way, would you be able to express love? Would you be able to express forgiveness? It is only the love of God shown at the cross that changes someone. And the Amish believe that. I mean, they're, they're dialed into that. That's, that's part of the faith. The love of God shown at the cross moves people and allows them to love even their enemies and extend forgiveness where forgiveness seems impossible. And I think that is so needed now. And I'd actually say that this last point, this is where the cross um, is powerful and is the kind of power we need today. Um, This last point is this, the cross-shaped life will give you power to handle whatever comes your way. The cross-shaped life will give you power to handle whatever comes your way. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to his followers, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily. Now, if we're we're talking about literally dying on a cross, you can only do that once. So when he says you have to do this daily, he can't be talking about that daily, except he pairs it with this idea of deny yourself. And so Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a Christ follower, if you're going to be the Jesus people in the world, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself, means your preferences, your privileges, your, your stuff. You're going to lay that stuff down. And, you, and in a sense, you're going to pick up that cross and you're going to sac- self-sacrifice for the good of others. And you're going to do this every day. Um, and, and, and that's going to be, uh, that, that, that's what Christ is calling us to. The essence of discipleship, and it is what is so badly needed, is that we would lay down um, our preferences and our, and our rights and our privileges and all that. If I asked you right now, with the year that, think about the last year that we've had as a culture, if I asked you, what does the world need, like right now? What do we badly need? More science? Do we need more science? More true, true news, not fake news? Is that what we need? More of this kind of political power instead of this kind? More of this person in charge, not this person? Is this what we need in the world right now? Because I'm not sure, every, like, I'm, I, you know, when it comes to like political power, I'm like, let's give everybody a shot. Let everybody take a, everybody have a go. Because I'm guessing it doesn't end well anyway. Doesn't matter. Change them out, fine. Your tu- you, you didn't get a turn, your turn. You know, it's like, I wanted, to, I wanted to feel like a kid's birthday party with a pinata. Like, everybody just come up and take a swing. I don't care. Fine. This, the, 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 the little one who can't hit anything, you go first. That's fine. Like, whatever. Do we need more of that? Is that really what the world needs? Is that, is that going to solve things? How about an alternative to political power? How about kindness? Maybe we need more kindness. We have signs for it. Be kind, and I like those. Let's be kind. It's a a good reminder. And in in fact, the alternative to being kindness, if the alternative to be kind is be crappy, I prefer kind. Kind is good. But is that going to get us out of this mess? Does that solve it? Oh, if people are just a little more kind. It, It would go a long way, yes. But 
there's real hurt and real pain and real suffering and real trauma and real struggle that a little bit of kindness is just not going to fix. What is, what is actually needed in the world? And I would say the real thing that is needed and, and what is the real power of the cross is this. What is needed is people lovingly sacrificing themselves for others, lovingly laying down their preferences, their rights, their privileges, their accolades, lay those down on behalf of others, and that's what changes the culture. Christians are called to be cruciform people. Cruciform is this sort of, I guess, a theological word, but it's basically like our lives should be shaped by the cross, formed by the cross. That's That's the lens through which we see everything in the world, and it is the way in which we will handle anything that comes our way. If I have sorrow and I have pain and sadness, I can can go, well, I'm walking in the path of Christ because he had that. I have a cruciform life. He told me sorrow is coming. I'm doing it. If I have joy, I I can go, man, I have this moment of joy, and this is great. But because a cruciform life, because I'm following Christ, because my life is supposed to be sort of cross-shaped, I know that in my joy, I have a greater joy waiting for me in eternity and that this is just a, a little foretaste of the good thing that, that is coming, the ultimate joy. If, if the resurrection gives me hope for the future that I can live again, the cross gives me a strategy for the present. I can live right now and this is how I'm going to live. So let me just try to make that practical for you. What is cruciform life look like? Let me just give you a couple contexts. In parenting, cruciform life means you lay down your preferences for the sake of your children to make, to, to love and shape and make, make disciples of, of your children. Uh, cruci- I, I, I lay it down. I lay down my privileges for them. Now, any of you who are a parent are like, yep, check, done it. Uh, that's, that's all of parenting. It's like, I don't want to get up this early, but you're in my room right now demanding Cheerios. Like, this is like, I can't wait till you're old enough to pour your own bowl because that's a freaking game changer, let me tell you. Um, that, but but it, it is the laying down of, I don't get to sleep in. I don't get to this. I have to make your sandwich. I have to do, like, that is uh, laying down of what I would prefer to do for the sake of someone else. That it, Parenting is like that, on and on and on. It is a very one way I am doing this for them. And, and that is a good thing. I had friends um, who... Um, Years, years back, I remember meeting up with them for dinner, and they, they said they don't want to have children. They're a married couple. I was like, that's fine, you know. Um, and I, I had three. I, I have three, and I had three at that time. And um, I, said, uh, I, I said, yeah, you know, the kids are great or whatever. And, and the husband, I remember him saying to me, um, he said, you know, uh, I don't want to have kids because um, I just can't imagine getting up and making someone else's sandwich before I make mine. And I thought... Yeah, I mean, I get that. I, I feel that way too. It's, it's way more than a sandwich though. Like there's, you're going to do a lot of things. <laughs> like, so if, that, if that's uncomfortable for you, like there's way more coming, right? Um, but it is, I, I understand the mindset. And I would actually say one of the beautiful things about being a parent is, is, is how it forces you out of that mindset. How it forces you to be less selfish, to think of others, to put others' needs before you, to, it almost forces you into the cruciform life. I have to uh, deny myself so that others can have. This is why your mother never got a hot meal, because she was denying herself to make sure yours was set, right? 
So cruciform parenting looks a little bit like, let me lay down my preferences for them. Uh, cruciform marriage can look like this. The way marriage is described in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells, Paul tells wives to follow the lead of their husbands, to let their husbands lead in the marriage. There's a leadership role that God calls husbands to, and, they call, and, and he tells wives to follow. Now, that is laying down your preferences sometimes for wives. But when he goes to husbands, he basically tells husbands, you love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died for it. So the command, the calling on husbands is, die for your wife. Lay down your life for her. Lay down, gosh, at least your preferences Lay down what you've got on behalf of her. This is what marriage can do and should do in us is to force us to look outside of ourselves and go, okay, I, am, I, I need to be for this other person. I need to lay down what I have on their behalf. That is a cruciform life in marriage. What about um, if you're single? I have said before that I think uh, single people have an opportunity that married people don't. They have an opportunity, they, ha- they have a flexibility and a freedom with time, money, and energy, and they can, they can accomplish some things that married people cannot. And so with that opportunity to use that um, as, as, as an opportunity, to use that time, that, that phase or whatever, or, or that life, to use it to love and serve other people, to, 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 uh, to pour out on, on behalf of others. Um, I really think the example in the New Testament is no matter what situation you're in, if you're married or single, if you're rich or you're poor, if, you're, if you have a lot going on or you don't have a lot going on, if, you're, if you've experienced all this pain and struggle or you haven't experienced pain and struggle, like no matter what situation you find yourself in, if you're employed or unemployed, if you're the boss or the employee, no matter where you are, um, take what you have and then pour it out for the sake of others. Give... Um, for uh, lay down your preferences. Uh, a professor of mine from college put this out on Twitter in an ever so timely fashion for my sermon today. Uh, he said this, he said, the cross teaches me that when people give me privilege, I should use it to serve others. And when people give me limitations, I should also use them to serve others. And I think that's powerful because that's not what our culture says right now. Our culture says if you have limitations, you're supposed to break them. If you have privileges, you should get rid of all of them and give them to the people who have limitations and we should move everything around and you've got too much and I should give it to those who don't have enough and there's, there's something mildly socialist in all of that and you, some would argue how mild that is um, but there's something going on there that says no, really the main struggle in humanity is about power and these people have it and these people don't we should take it from these people and give it to these people and there's this whole thing going on um, that historically ends very badly when society go down that road and the cross comes along and says nope here's the deal the real deal here is if you have you willingly lay that down and you work within you lay down your privileges and you help other people and serve other people and if you don't have and you are functioning in limitations even within your limitations you figure out how can i help and serve other people all of us deny ourselves live a cruciform life and be shaped by the cross and i think this is what is so badly needed and is what's so badly missing in the culture. Um, this is where the church needs to be, the way forward for us, the way of, of unity, that we can hold it together, the way of, the way of power, the, the way of hope, the way of freedom, is not to reach out for political power and say, I wish we had more of that. 
uh, political power, that's really going to be the thing. It's to reach out to the cross and say, this thing is going to shape how I actually live and talk and move. So last thing, question. Where do you have privilege that you can lay down so to serve other people? Or where are you experiencing limitation? And even in that, you can find a way to serve other people. That is a cross-shaped life, and that is a powerful life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the cross that we're going to celebrate now as we take communion. We're going to remember your sacrifice that Jesus died on the cross for us and all the things that that does, that it, it makes us right before you. It, it um, begins a healing work in our hearts. It helps us um, start to build relationships with one another. It unifies the church. It brings people together. God, um, none of us are so bad that, that the cross can't cover it. Um, and so I, I thank you for that grace, and I thank you for that, for that truth. God, may we, um, as we sing, as we take communion, may we experience the love, uh, uh, your love for us and your power at work in us. Um, God, I, I pray that as we meditate on the cross in the bread and juice, we remember all of that. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.